Right now, it's a test tube Thursday, so we say good morning to our scientist, Dan Riskin. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. So you're quoted in this. Uh, there's some coverage of how a body type could give some athletes an advantage in certain climates. How have they figured that out? Well, this is neat because it's a, it's a zoology thing being applied to humans. And so if you look at rabbits, and I know we're getting off on a tangent to start with, but That's I'll bring okay. it back, I promise. When you look at a jackrabbit in the desert, it has huge ears, and those are great for listening for predators and stuff like that, but they're also radiators. They, it's a way for the jackrabbit to dump heat, is having these big, long ears. And you find that in desert animals, they tend to have big body parts, long limbs, stuff like that, a big surface area. And if you look at animals that live in cold places, like an Arctic hare, which of course is almost a rabbit, um, it, it's got smaller ears, and it's not. It's trying to preserve heat, so it wants a smaller surface area, so it's as spherical as it can be, as opposed to long and lanky. And this difference occurs across a whole bunch of different animals. And so researchers wanted to know if there was anything like that going on for humans. And so they looked at people who competed in the Ironman and looked at how long their limbs are and how they did when they ran the marathon or sorry, when they did the Ironman in different weather. And their expectation was if people have long limbs, they should do better in hot Ironman competitions when they run it somewhere hot uh, or run, swim and bike it somewhere hot. Uh, and that when people have shorter limbs, they should have better time, personal times when they do it in cold weather. And so they looked at the data for a bunch of like 200 Ironman competitions, 173 athletes, half men, half women. And what they found is there was really not the signal they were expecting overall. But when they looked at the running component, they found the signal they expected, but only for men, not for women. But among men, men that have long limbs, their better personal times happened in warmer weather. And men with shorter limbs, their better personal times were in colder weather. So it's pretty cool that these humans, at least the men in this case, have fit the trend that works for rabbits and camels and all these other animals that live in, in different habitats. Well, perhaps not entirely surprising. We're all animals at, uh, at our core. Yeah, yeah, that's just it. And, and it's neat to think about, you know, the, these physiological things exist and you can see it in the shapes of these animals that are adapted to their habitats, but you see it in humans in in the extremes of what a human body can do. And that's where these things start to show. And so um, it's just, it's neat when something that you know is true for all these animals comes out true for humans and it makes you think differently about how humans are built. Okay, so how does it work that feeling hungry might slow aging? Does that mean we should all stop eating? Now, this one bugs me because uh, so I, I, I believe it, but I don't like what it tells me because I know from a whole bunch of other research that I've seen that uh, having a low calorie diet, a calorie restricted diet makes you live longer. And I've always lamented that because I love eating. <laughs> I love eating too much. And I've always thought, oh, you know, if there is some way I can get around the pain of not eating. Maybe there's some kind of a different food I can eat that has fewer calories. But this is a study. Now, it's in fruit flies. But what they did with the fruit flies is instead of changing how many calories they were getting, they changed their perception of how hungry they were. And they could do this by changing the, the nature of the foods and also by doing the certain stimulation to the neurons to make them feel hungry, even though they were getting the same number of calories as other flies. And what they found in their study is it's not the number of calories that makes you live longer, at least not for these fruit flies. It's feeling hungry that caused them to live longer. And it, like the median age went from 20 days in the fruit flies that were not hungry to like 40 days in the fruit flies that were hungry. And so I don't know whether you can really translate this fruit fly thing to humans, and they don't either. This, they're very careful to point that out. But it might be that the thing, the magic sauce for humans in living a long life because you're eating fewer calories is actually the 
feeling of being hungry. That might actually be what you need to achieve in order to get all the benefits of that, which is bad news for me because I hate being hungry and I want to live a long life. So I'm not sure exactly what to do with this. I'll wait until they get more data on humans, I guess. Help me understand how you establish that a fruit fly feels hungry. <laughs> Well, you, you look at how much it eats. So what they do is they have um, these, uh, these, these special branch chain amino acids. And when they include them in the food, um, the, the, the fruit flies feel like they're getting enough food and they stop eating. And so they were able to establish with a whole bunch of trials beforehand the presence of these branched amino acids and how much the fruit flies would eat. And so they could get an index of how hungry they felt. And if you restrict the, their access to this particular kind of amino acid, even though they're eating, they still feel hungry. And so they were able to, to tease apart. They were able to use that. And then they were also able to uh, use, you know, these special lights to, to affect the neurons, to, to affect their perception of hunger. So they can measure beforehand how much they eat in response to these interventions to show that they affect hunger. And then once they know how much hunger they're causing, they can then use it as an experimental device. Okay. So I don't know if you know that one of my eccentricities is I don't eat beef. And it's because of the first outbreak of mad cow disease. And now there's a new kind of mad cow disease. Well, so mad cow disease is caused by what's called a prion. It's, it's a protein that occurs in the brain and the spinal cord that makes copies of itself. And when that gets into animals, it can be very bad. So when, uh, when it shows up in cows, it's called mad cow disease or, or bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Um, but when in humans, it's, uh, it's Creutzfeldt Jakob disease. Um, and w the way it spreads is when a cow eats the brain of a cow that had this. And so it used to be that they would take slaughtered cow parts and spread them into the food because it was protein. And then the cows would get that protein. It was a great way to save money, but they were spreading these prions. And so they've changed the way they do that. Um, and back in the day, there was a big outbreak of the mad cow disease that was caused by cows eating cows. And so it was all the same kind of prion. But every once in a while in healthy cows, uh, just by nature of aging and bad luck, uh, a random cow will develop prions. And so they call that uh, this, 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 this different form of mad cow disease. It's not related to a problem in the feeds. It's not spreading among cows. It's just that it spontaneously forms in one cow and it starts to act sick and they test it and they find that it's this, uh, this different strain basically of prion. That's what's been reported in the States. It's the seventh time that this has been found in the last 20 years. They're saying a cow that grew up in Tennessee and was taken to a slaughter plant in South Carolina was not acting normal. They tested it and it had what they call atypical bovine spongiform encephalopathy. So they don't think that this points to any problems in the food, uh, in, in the way the cows were, were fed. They say this cow was removed and never went to slaughter in the plant, is not in the food source, is not going out to customers. They say that they caught this and, and uh, sidelined it and it's not something you need to worry about. But you know, the, the flip side of that is it does point out the fact that these are the kinds of things that you put yourself at risk for when you do choose to eat meat. Now, when you eat cow, you're not eating the brain, so you're not at, at risk there. But nonetheless, uh, this is something that everybody's monitoring very carefully. And when a, a case shows up, it makes the news. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That's Dan Riskin, our science expert who joins us every Thursday for Test Tube Thursday.